0: counties.
1: 32 questions.
0: My name, it is Una.
1: And mine is Andrea.
0: And this is United, United Ireland.
1: Ireland. Hmm. <laughs> we usually take a county, dive into, which we will be doing again, diving into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. But that was BC.
0: These days, we look at issues or themes in a rapidly changing pandemic impacted country and give them a global context. Our counties are coming back very soon, though. So if you're a new patron who's just been following the BC content, get ready for our return to the wonderful counties of Ireland shortly. This episode, we're talking about how street life is changing very rapidly, quickly and in multiple ways and what that means for planning and design. That's right. It's the Streets Are First Seats episode. I nearly fucked that up. Sorry. Um, Speaking of Patreon, big up all of our Patreon supporters. We love you. Please help us keep making us, uh, keep making us making these juicy, juicy podcasts. Uh, As a Patreon supporter, you get treats, you get um, exclusive bonus episodes, and you also get the Sunday Soothe every Sunday, putting meaning in Instagram and Pinterest quotes. Very excitingly we ran our second uh treasure hunt. Uh the winner gets a glorious print from Atelier Maser. Um Andrea, drumroll, who's the treasure do, hunt winner?
1: Do you know what? I still can't figure out who gets more joy from the treasure hunt, the people doing it or us watching the entries come in. They're just so, it's just so lovely to see people's interpretation of our criteria and the, people get so much effort for them, so it really is quite heartbreaking not making everyone a winner um, and that's just the utopia we live in where everyone's a winner but unfortunately we do have to have a winner and based on our scoring and our points and all that jazz, this Treasure Hunts winner is dun, 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 Rachel O'Malley
0: Congrats Rachel, we'll be in touch, you rock uh, and thanks to all the entrants enter entr- entr- uh, people who entered <laughs>
1: um, so- and Yes, Rachel was also our the first entrant, mm. so she got bonus points for that. So it, when we do it again, it might be worth getting your skates on and doing it straight away, just saying, because you do get extra points.
0: Andrea, how are you feeling?
1: Oh, I'm feeling so good. It hurts. It feels like real life is coming back a little bit. Obviously, we're opening our salon next week, which makes me so joyous. Um, yeah, I feel like what I had lost during pandemic is beginning to come back and that's really selfish but I'm back as I was saying to you earlier I've got some fave bits this week so my mind is working again as well so it's all G. how are you feeling? I'm grand bit
0: hectic this week in my mind and work and um, I also did like As somebody who doesn't cycle apart from bombing around town on a Dublin bike. So I do cycle. I do cycle. But I cycled out to my folks uh, yesterday. A little 30k round trip in the beating sun. So I'm a little bit rosy on the nose today. Uh, But yeah, grand and um, happy pride, I guess. I, I should be right now cracking open a can of cider somewhere uh, and Either,
1: not White Claw? Not White
0: Claw, Claw. no. Um, uh, at Glastonbury. So I feel a little bit bereft, but listen, there's people going through way bigger shit than not being at a festival drinking cider right now. Um, but um, speaking of things happening, <laughs> and things missing, uh, that's really great link there. Um, let's go to the State of the Nation.
1: So oh, the state of the nation this week. It's an interesting week, to, to be fair. So, obviously, we had the announcement that mm-hmm. um, all the very important beauty salons are coming back uh, into action a, very, a good few weeks before they were due to on the 20th of July. So, uh, 29th of June is the time for that to open, and obviously there's a lot of costs involved in reopening and like as for all businesses and restaurants and all that jazz. um, But people are being respectful of it and like doing a certain percentage or maybe adding a small flat fee or whatever. But there was uh, a revolt uh, this week when Peter Mark and Style Club announced that they were charging um, a regrowth charge for uh, doing your hair. Um, And it's like Ellen Cohen did an article about it and it was like, there was a fight back of like, obviously there's going to be um, extra costs involved and um, there will be more hair to dye, etc. And we have to take that into account plus PPE, etc. But I think the problem was that there was an announcement of just a flat fee of 80 euro. And they're like, no, this is a service you can pick where it's a service we're providing for regrowth because, you know, your hair dye is further from your scalp. But like it's three months. I get my hair done every six months and I don't get a regrowth free. People were going to hairdressers with that space um, and weren't being charged this 80 euro and also um, there it, the people were there was no consultation so it wasn't based on your needs it was just a flat fee so there was a big huge hullabaloo um, over this during the week but so it really does bring to light like you don't want to be the business that is profiting from Corona and opening up. There are challenges obviously in opening up and we have had a very hard time as business owners of being closed for the last while. But I think we all have to respect our clients or they won't respect you. Am I right? Correct. What else is going on? Uh, The other people who are not being respected uh, (laughs) is... uh, the whole world's privacy who uses Facebook. Um, there has been a campaign called Stop Hate for Profit and it has been signed up by some big brands who are deciding uh, not they will not uh, advertise any longer on Facebook's platforms which is Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. And they include Ben & Jerry's have come out against it, Patagonia um, and loads of other companies which is uh, really Great to see the fact that they, if Mark Zuckerberg is not going to tackle hate speech and misinformation and disinformation on his platform, that the funds are going to dry up. And there's been speculation um, that Facebook is hemorrhaging money. Um, and that Instagram is the platform that's keeping it afloat. And if they hadn't bought Instagram, which is a much more joyous filled platform where people share pictures of their dinner um, rather than uh, targeted hate campaigns, um, they would be going under. So hopefully that is like, as I say, money talk. So you would hope that the advertisers revolting will, uh, maybe talk to Mark Zuckerberg where the only place it seems to uh, hit.
0: Yeah, it's because it's like 99 point something percent of their revenue is advertising. What I think is interesting as well is that my understanding is that some of these companies are doing it for a period of time, like for a month or something. But it's like if you are admitting that this platform uh, is toxic, uh, that there is hate and conspiracy and disinformation, misinformation platformed, then, you know, that's a company admitting like that a lot of the stuff on Facebook is trash and that they don't want to be there. So hopefully that um if you're gonna make that stand and pull your advertising, you kind of should be pulling it permanently. Um speaking of things being pulled permanently, no. Um our uh,
1: tenuous links are gas today.
0: <laughs> our, yeah, tenuous links all the way. Um the the Monday's coming up, and that's the 29th of June, and that's the new phase in our opening up. And it'll be interesting to see how that feels. I was around town yesterday. uh I cycled, illegally cycled down Grafton street and then illegally cycled down Henry street. Um, it's
1: real breakers like you, Luna. It's real breakers like you. I
0: make no apologies for cycling through crowds. Um It was, that I just don't like the energy in the city at the moment in busy places. Um,
1: Oh, I'm the opposite. I'm yeah. feeding off it. I'm literally throwing myself into it and just being just so delighted by it.
0: I think it's in in certain streets that aren't dominated by like just high street chain stores. It's, there's, there is kind of a, a vibrancy to it. I just, I'm not, I'm not really into um, the kind of frantic consumerism that's happening. Um
1: oh, I, I'm, Probably the same. Like where I'm feeding is like I'm obviously between Exchequer Street, Castle Market, St William Street, rather than going into the Grafton Street area. So it's yeah. not about I'm in the areas where there's an energy of people congregating, socially distancing, and enjoying each other's company and time, rather than going in to buy things. Yeah. Um, so it's I suppose it's a different energy, but just to see the people back uh, and the energy in the city. And maybe it's even better the fact that the shops aren't open in those places as much. Anyway, it's it's nice to have the city buzzing again, I think.
0: Yeah, i I mean, I think I'm in a different headspace to you, but um we'll leave we'll leave that aside for the time being. Um but I one of the things that I did notice and I counted them uh as I was cycling uh down Grafton Street illegally, just want to point out it's illegal to cycle down Grafton Street. Um and uh there, so there's like hundreds and hundreds of people, like the street was completely packed and I counted six people total wearing masks. This comes as the WHO reported the largest single day increase of confirmed cases on June 21st. I think uh, the US is obviously hasn't even got out of its first wave. Um, obviously, uh, you know, America is very big. Uh, so... um. You know, different places are are uh, experiencing an upsurge in cases, although they're continuing to open. We saw those images from people on beaches in in England and Bournemouth and all that kind of stuff. Loads of raves happening um, as people kind of down of places to congregate, festivals, clubs, etc. So are, are having street parties. It will be interesting to see how the next couple of weeks um, pan out in terms of cases. Uh, so I'm, I think myself personally. I'm, I'm just kind of sitting tight. I'm not ready to come out of lockdown uh, emotionally, so. physically uh, and, and all the rest. So I, I'm kind there of just
1: like that as well. And even from when we were doing our like polls for chop pop of how people were feeling, it was a 50, 50 divide of people who are really dying to get back into the city. And then people who just were like, I just, I'm not ready for that. Um, and I think that's totally fair, but on the masks thing, uh, I actually read. I saw this. Like masks have obviously been a, con- a bone of contention because of they're not being enforced, and obviously that will change when you have to wear them on public transport. But also, when well, it be mandatory, but also, um, all the beauty salons and all the businesses that are opening next week are going to be enforcing mask wearing. So it will become much more widespread. But I saw a post uh, on the rubber bandits, uh, he did a tweet about when you go into a supermarket, the people that you see wearing the masks are older people who have to wear because they're afraid and how it's really sad and heartbreaking to see them uh, who they, they need to go shopping but they're trying to protect themselves but us, other people not wearing a mask is letting them down and it's like Think about them when you're going into public spaces and spheres without a mask on. And like I have my mask now that I just wear it around my neck so that I can pop it up and down. It's not a big deal, and it's I don't have to go rooting for it. And it's you can just pop it on and off when you're going into these spaces. So do I've just really hit home how much it's affecting um, people at risk and older people um, to see the um, the swathes of people not wearing a mask.
0: Hmm. Um one really, really interesting thing that happened this week, uh leaving uh coronavirus aside for a second, is this report on gender and female musicians being played on Irish radio. Uh, it was really, really fantastic. Linda Coogan Byrne did the report, loads of women's voices included in it, but it really showed uh the bias of uh, towards male artists even though there are so many brilliant female artists in Ireland obviously and that we're getting this kind of constant churn of, of lads with guitars uh, or pianos and um. Being prioritised, you know, a basic aspect of of gender equality is just counting. And uh, a really, really great report. It's really worth reading. Uh, You can find it online. Loads of female musicians are tweeting about it. So as we uh, move forward into a new equitable world, uh, lots of radio stations are doing very, very poorly at broadcasting women which is ridiculous considering that it really is female fandom that drives um so much of the music industry um from purchasing to uh live music to merch and obviously all of the you know the amazing uh female artists that are supported and also women support so many male artists uh so many of the male artists that are that are being played on the radio like um you know uh i (laughs) just constantly forget their names you know these guys make music Uh, loads of them are really good Um, so uh, yeah I I, I think that it's really great work done there and and very uh, worth mentioning and and fair play to everyone involved in that. And
1: it's really opened up the conversation right through from bookers to managers to bands having to be answerable to it and to have a stance on it and it's just great to see really isn't it? Yep.
0: Um, Now it's time for our weekly feature, The Corona Correction. This week's Corona Correction, a very quick one. It's happening in cities all over the world, but worth mentioning that how Paris has become a cycling city, uh, this is not exactly a a COVID-related development. It's been happening uh, for a little while. But um, Paris is going to create 650 kilometres of post-corona cycleways for post uh, or of for for post-lockdown travel sorry not post-corona because it's going to be around for a while post-lockdown travel really really great thing it echoes uh, some of the things that are happening um, in Irish cities as well so um, go on Paris uh, go on cycling and go on the corona correction but now it's the main bulk of our podcast and we're going to be talking about seats for streets and how streets are for seats
1: Now for our main bit this week. We are talking about the last few months, how we've seen streets change from bike lanes and widened footpaths to the queue markers on the ground. There are still loads of issues. Um, uh, when will we have a decent number of public toilets? How many? How are people meant to effectively queue outside shops? Uh, what streets will be pedestrianised permanently? Um key to all of this is a conversation around uh, public space and how simple things have taken on new meanings in our daily lives and our social lives. Um, We've already talked a lot about how the fronts of people houses and footpaths and neighbourhoods are the prime land for the chats and the socialising and how public parks have been busier than ever. Um, The fact is more people are going to be spending time outdoors because it's safer. And the restrictions are creating a new kind of takeout culture, um, which brings us to seats. Where are they? Why aren't there enough? And what are we going to do about it? Um, I have been living my town life the last few days, especially um, on St. William Street because we're reopening. And it's phenomenal to see the amount of people who are getting their coffees, getting their take their pizzas, getting their lunch or whatever, and just all sitting on the ground on Castle Market. And it begs the question of like, once you take the businesses out of the city, um, who is the city for? And is the city going to function and should it function, not just targeting businesses operating, but actually the people of the city who own the city? um. So today we are going to be talking to Joan O'Connell who is from Streets Are For People and also Councillor Clare Byrne from the Green Party uh, to get to the bottom of why we don't have more seats in the city. We are now joined by Joan O'Connell who is from Streets Are For People. Um, Joan, could you kick straight in and tell us what Streets Are For People is, how it came about, and what the goals of the movement are?
2: Great, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so, um, well, I got involved with uh, Streets Are For People last year. Um, there was a, an event that took place on South William Street in Dublin on the south side there. And um, <clears throat> I basically kind of got involved by accident, really. Um, so it was organised by a number of other people. I happened to hear about it on online that this event was coming up. Um, so it was on a Saturday. So I basically sort of offered my services uh, to do a bit of a survey of the businesses while the the action was happening. Showed up on the day, and um, basically the idea was to let's say liberate the street uh, from cars for the day just to see what St William Street would look like as a trial run, nearly. But it was also kind of a demonstration to show what would the street be like if it was pedestrianised or, you know, given pedestrian priority. Um, So on the day, uh, we were really surprised actually with how positive the response was from people who passed by, Um, shoppers, tourists at the time. It was, you know, back in the before times. Um, Everybody immediately responded really well, with minor exceptions, one or or two people. Uh, Pretty much, we had hundreds of people going through uh, the street for most of the day. We were there from about mid morning until mid afternoon or, or early evening, and um, instantly, as soon as the car traffic was taken out of that street, it filled up with people. Just straight away, people filled that space, and um, so you had more space for 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 shoppers, for people in the pubs that were open at the time. Um, but also, it was a little bit more accessible to people as well because if anyone's familiar with South William Street, the footpaths there are very narrow so there's not much space for walking and it's a very busy area if anybody knows the, the, the area there it's quite near Grafton Street, really busy shopping district, it's also a thoroughfare between other shopping streets so it's really busy lots of cafes and restaurants around the area um, but also if you're familiar with those footpaths, they're really uneven and people who are kind of able-bodied might actually realise how, how rocky and difficult to walk on they are or certainly difficult to, to use any mobility aids on um, so it really was was something that we found was a lot more beneficial to people and as we saw the space being used a lot of that was kind of almost revealed maybe things you didn't think about uh, could be seen um so i think that that's kind of how i got involved and that's how, how what my first experience with streets Surfer people was um And it basically was organized by a number of different groups who kind of came together, different members of different groups. So there was the Dublin Commuter Coalition. There was the Irish Pedestrian uh, Network. There was a Dublin Cycling Campaign. And then I think other volunteers like myself just kind of hopped in on on board um, because the sound of it was just such a simple idea, but such a potentially really effective idea. Um, And I think the spontaneity of it and the way it was kind of people-led lent to how successful it was on the day. Um, And it was contrasted by, I think, a week or two later, there was the sort of official um, College Green trial run, which was very kind of heavily managed and controlled. And it was set up like an event by Dublin City Council, probably very well attended. Say again? There was a lot of barriers involved. There was. That was the big, big thing that everyone noticed. It was like very much trying to corral people and kind of control the space, um, which was very strange. I think people... We're kind of like taken aback a little bit by that, and also just how it was laid out is kind of confusing. There was nothing intuitive about it, so hopefully that there's been lessons taken from that experience by the council. But it just was an example of how not to do things as well. I think I think there's some parts of officialdom are a little bit afraid of crowds and spaces, and there's a little element of that maybe of kind of having to have this managed or maybe you know kind of insurance costs or something like that. That that there's very much an official attitude to to space, whereas with our pro- protest and our kind of, um, let's say, unofficial people-led trial run was very much a spontaneous event and very much literally just allowing the space to be used as space rather than taken over by cars.
1: And why do you think it's important to have pedestrianisation areas rather than car areas? Um, I suppose there's a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, a lot of spaces
2: are... It, 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 I would say, for want of a better word, degrades the space if if it's taken over by vehicles. Um, Because it's not only practically, it's it's noisy, it's polluting, but it's also very disruptive. I mean, it cuts through an area. So if you have people, especially in an area that's maybe like a a suburban village or something like that, or a place in town, which is very much surrounded by pedestrian areas anyway, and it's very busy, you have that space then that's cut through by a a stream of of motor traffic. And so it, it... presents an obstacle. And it's also part of what I would regard as sort of domination of public space by by vehicles and by a very car-centric view when I think the, the public spaces, and it, it's not only confined to cities, but in my experience, city spaces and urban spaces need to be more people-centric rather than car-centric. Um, so I think some of the main reasons are not just the, the kind of aesthetic side of, of that, but the, the health reasons. Also reasons around accessibility I mean if you know like a few years ago I was hit by the driver of a car and I was pretty much out of action for quite a while and as I was rehabbing and so on I mean I thought I was aware of a lot of the issues around public space in Dublin but it really brought home a lot of things that I wouldn't have even thought about so like let's say if I'm waiting near my home where there's a a pedestrian crossing and it's quite a big road it's a busy road immediately I could see It takes way too long to cross the road for me as somebody at the time who had a pretty bad um, disability um, and, you know, I wouldn't even get halfway across the first lane of traffic before the lights change because obviously cars are being accommodated first ahead of the likes of me and so I've been kind of recovering from that but there are people with permanent disabilities, people who are older, children who are just not that quick and you can't be expected to run across the road, especially when our little green cross cross code tells us not to run. So... You know, there's very much that kind of brought to, to light for me a lot of these issues around the the the, the dominance of the car, the way our roads and so and streets are designed around cars as a as against being designed around people as such, um, and it also brought home this these these ideas around the quality of the footpaths There, that I I couldn't tell you one single foot plat that was suitable for me when I was trying to to get around on crutches and so on and in a lot of pain. Um, but also things that people might consider, like public seating, really simple idea that you mightn't even worry about. But, you know, then and even now, um, I really noticed the lack of public seating because I, you know, I can't walk for very far without getting a lot of pain. And now I need to sit. And so again, in my experience, that's brought that to light for me. But it's always been an issue for people who are maybe people have disabilities, people who are pregnant, people who are maybe homeless. They just need to sit down somewhere. And I think I've seen it as well, um, not just from my own experience, but recently in relation to the coronavirus. So Dublin City Centre has been a lot quieter when it comes to traffic, but people have been around the city centre and say around Grafton Street, Dawson Street, a lot of the the busy streets, O'Connell Street. You can see people trying to find somewhere to sit, maybe if they've gotten a takeaway coffee or something and they're trying to do something slightly normal and there's nowhere for them to sit. So they're sitting on the street, they're sitting on a, a steps of a building, they're sitting on somewhere and you can really see that this is a, a need that we, that we have but as I said, it's always been there for people who have had disabilities, people who have been pregnant, and it's kind of only come to light because I think it's um, affecting a lot more people now. And, and so you have, let's say, the public toilets being installed in, in Stevens Green and Tone Square all of a sudden because it's affecting a lot more people. But I know the people I'm let's say, activists and advocates um, such as Susie Byrne and others have said that this is something that, that people with disabilities, for example, have been crying out for for years and have, have known these issues And um, because not everyone can rely on um, a private seating arrangement. So where a business has outdoor seating, they can't maybe have the money to spend to be able to sit. It really shouldn't cost you anything to sit or to go into a premises to use the, the bathrooms there. Um, and then it, again, accessibility, most of the businesses in, in Ireland, in, in certainly in Dublin, are not accessible um, for various reasons. They're just, you can't get in if you don't, if you're not able enough. Um, so there's a whole range of issues that really is thrown up by when you really look at how gendered and how ableist our public spaces currently are, but you mightn't realise that when you're walking around as an able-bodied person or somebody who, you know, doesn't have to consider some of these issues. Um so, yes, there's a whole lot of, of things that have been thrown up in, the, in recent times for me, certainly, but they've been long existing issues.
1: Yeah. And something that's really interesting that you said there and that like I've really noticed is that um, since coronavirus has hit and that all the places where people would normally c- congregate, like the bars and the cafes and the restaurants are all closed, that we've really seen the issue of public space and how it's used Highlighted and that we do rely on commercial businesses to provide these amenities, but like it just seems very bizarre that we're we're putting this I suppose onus on a commercial business to shape our city, and when you take that away, we're left with not really very much at all. And I suppose the big question then that comes from that is: Are you only allowed to congregate in the city if you're spending money? Um, and like, obviously, it's fair enough that you like you can use a businesses facilities if you spend money, but like should our cities only be open to businesses um, or people frequenting these businesses? Mm-hmm. I think the, the domain of who owns public space and who can use it and why aren't we using it better um, is really being thrown up with coronavirus.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way you describe it there really kind of starkly illustrates that. It's like as soon as businesses shut down, what is left in the supposedly public space? Um, so, I mean, Yeah, I completely agree that. I mean, I do think there's a place, and especially with coronavirus now, there is a space for businesses to have some kind of outdoor seating if that can be facilitated in a way that doesn't encroach too much on that public space. Because it is meant to be, or it is, public space but when it becomes encroached by private interests and so on then where does that leave that public space is it now sort of essentially privatized which as you said is essentially exclusionary because if you don't have the money or means to avail of of um you know going paying for a coffee or paying for a meal in order to sit somewhere um then you're excluded from that public space so is it even any longer public space at all um but i mean you know it shouldn't be a question of whether or not you can pay for it. it the, the public space should be for the public, so it should be managed by the municipal authorities. It should be managed in a way that serves the public and it is inclusive, so it's a public space for all. Um, because, and not to get sort of you know ranty about my tax dollars, but it is public funds that clean and manage and maintain and the, the workers from the WC Council are the ones carrying out those works on these public spaces that are meant to be public. Um, so, I mean, if anything, I think we need to be able to, whether it's you know movements like ourselves in, in streets for people or elected representatives, need to be pushing for um, optimizing that public space so that it is accessible for all. And I think where you have it very people focused and people centric, then you can see that the spaces will be used more, and they will literally fill up like like as happened on St. William Street during our demonstration last year they will fill up with people who will use that space. And it's, with the background of coronavirus as well, it's a safer way of using space too, both whether you're talking about a public realm issue or for businesses too. It's in business interest now to be able to use space for their for their means, again, subject to not encroaching too much on the public realm, um, in my view, at least. Yeah. Okay. No, no. So I just I I just think that 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 needs to be very much I think we need to really look again at the public space and how it's used, how it's um, how resources and so on and how the design is allocated in those public space, uh, public spaces. I think that um, there was a phrase there that um, Councillor Janet Horner mentioned to me just earlier today, in fact. Um, that we need sort of pro-social behavior when it comes to the public realm. I know that there's a lot of kind of, as I mentioned earlier, sort of official Ireland is a bit wary of, you know, putting in public spaces for people or putting in public seating because it'll attract negative behavior. I think if you bring in more people and you encourage spaces to be made public spaces for all, then you have fewer troublemakers that can come in or at least if they're there they're certainly outnumbered because people will avail of spaces that are meant to be used and so i think there is that little bit of a fear in official official circles and i think that needs to be overcome in order to maximize the public realm that we do have here in ireland and i mean if you look at places like amsterdam the changes they've made in the last couple of decades has transformed the city there um, and they have very similar weather patterns to us so i know a lot of people say ireland and dublin is like full of rain all the time. Really, it's, it's not that bad. Um, so if they can do it in Amsterdam, you can certainly do it here in Ireland. And what are the
3: changes they did in Amsterdam?
2: S- say again? What are the changes they did in Amsterdam? So, yeah, I was going to say, when you look at Amsterdam, people sort of look at Amsterdam in the Netherlands and they say, well, you know, it's such a cycling city. They've always been like this. You know, you know, it's it's a city for people. That's just the way they are. But in fact, it's only in the last decade, since the seventies, that all of these bike lanes and this bicycle kind of centric view of of um, the city in Amsterdam has come into being. So, prior to that, it was very much a car centric city. A lot like Ireland. You can see, like online, you can look at photos from from Amsterdam city, and it's pretty car packed, it's full of cars, full of vehicles very few people are cycling without cycling in amongst all the cars which I think a lot of people would would see here in Ireland too so you don't have that, you don't have the public squares that they currently have, so these things have to be fought over at the political level locally in Amsterdam and in other Dutch Uh, cities and urban centres. So the idea that you have, I think a lot of people kind of look at Amsterdam and the Netherlands and say, well, we don't have that culture here. But they didn't either. They didn't have that up until the the 70s when there was a push like politically from voters and from local representatives to change their um, urban realms, their public realms to make it more people-centric. So they then opened up squares for public seating, businesses, cafes. They... You know, restricted or limited access to cars so that people could cycle around, and that's where their supposed culture has come from around cycling and walking. It's it's actually not that long established, even though it might seem like it's so well associated with the Netherlands. It's actually only since the seventies or mid seventies that that's come into being. So it's definitely something that's possible in Dublin, and I think people need to maybe challenge some of the fears or some of the limitations that they think exist for Dublin and plow on and go ahead with it and maybe also learn from some of the, maybe the mistakes that the Dutch have done. I know that there's issues around accessibility and so on in some parts of, of the Netherlands too. And we could maybe develop Dublin to be a little bit more people-centric, but also more accessible than maybe other cities have been so far.
1: Amazing. Um, um, what are the new utilizations of streets in cities around the world you've seen as people adapt uh, to living with coronavirus?
2: Yeah, I mean, you can see... Um, there's a lot of cities that have made a lot of changes now. I, I couldn't rattle them off, but two of the ones that sort of jump out for me certainly are, I think it is Bogota in um, says South, South America and in Paris here in Europe are pretty much like they have rolled out huge changes in the last few weeks around or months around coronavirus and they have transformed their cities there to be much more Um, walking friendly, cycling friendly and those are big cities as well, it's not like these are small little contained um, urban centres, these are big big sprawling uh, cities but certainly in the the busier parts they've reallocated road space so that maybe a multi-lane street that is previously a car street now has one lane for cars and one lane has been allocated for cycling and maybe they've expanded their footpath space. So I think a lot of sort of reimagining that that type of public space is something that is certainly achievable if you look at these other examples and something that could be done in Dublin. And I know that, you know, a lot of people might say, oh, well, you know, Dublin is a medieval street. It's not meant for for that kind of thing. But at the same time, medieval streets weren't designed for cars either. So we can definitely reimagine the space that we have um, and there is, I think, room that we can we can reimagine Dublin to reallocate space from the wider streets. So maybe something like Cork Street in the south uh, south inner city, or somewhere like even O'Connell Street. A little bit more could be done there. Perhaps some of those wider streets could be could be reallocated. You've seen it on the quays where they've. Um, redesign the space there to allow more room for, for cycling, while keeping also space for drivers and for buses as well. Um, so it is possible just to re reimagine that space so that it's better, it's safer. It's safer in terms of coronavirus so that people can space themselves out from one another, but it's also safer in terms of limiting the interactions between people walking, people cycling and motor vehicles, because the, the danger there is really huge in that regard. Um, but I think that type of approach that has been taken in Paris and in Bogotá could also be something that could be looked at and incorporated into Dublin. Um, I, I, I can't see why I can't. Um, and I think that would be beneficial on a wider level, even beyond coronavirus. But certainly when it comes to coronavirus and the pandemic, I mean, it hasn't gone away. Things are, you know, restrictions are being lifted, but that's because we've maybe a bit more capacity in the health system now that think numbers are dropping a little bit, but it's still it's still there and we still need to be able to space ourselves out. And one of the key ways of doing that is for those people who can walk and cycle, that they walk and cycle. And in order to do that, that that's done safely. So the provision has to be put in place. And then for people who can't avail of walking and cycling, then that frees up space on buses. It frees up space for people who need to drive. Um, So I think it's kind of not to be too idealistic about it, but it is a kind of a virtuous, you know, a virtuous cycle whereby if people are able to to avail of active travel such as walking and cycling and they they do that then the knock on effects are beneficial for those who don't have that as an option.
1: Um amazing. Um but during corona for myself anyway um the city center was within my 2k radius mm-hmm. and I'd walk into the city and the difference of the streets with no traffic on them was immense especially like St William Street's my my hood. Mm-hmm. Um so I really noticed it um and the argument against pedestrianising the streets of the city comes up again and again um, and that it making the streets for people will affect trade and that would obviously have a huge impact on the heavily represented lobbied car parks. Um, what do you think about that? Um, I
2: suppose there's a number of issues there that I would take. I mean, firstly in relation to trade, as in local businesses and so on and um, the statistics i don't have them off the top of my head but certainly anyone can google statistics from uh, transport for london their research shows that and it's this is research you know that's echoed in other um findings as well that trade goes up the more you allow more active people you know active travel so people to walk and cycle if you provide access for walking and cycling into city centers and urban centers, the, the takings and the revenue and so on goes up for, for businesses in those areas rather than dropping. Um, and part of the reason for that is because although people who walk and cycle might Buy smaller amounts. You know they can't load up the boot of the car, but they make more regular and frequent trips. So they might buy little, but they buy often. So actually, overall, the 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 financial and the economic benefit for for local businesses is actually better. Um, so there is there's there's empirical findings to to kind of cu- counteract that argument. And it's it's a justifiable fear for some people I know, especially now. With businesses, you know, people's livelihoods have been really put under strain and, and they're on the line. But that's not something that they should be fearing. In fact, that, that would some that would certainly improve or enhance their business. Um, in terms of the car parks, um, obviously they their vested interest is to get cars in. That's their stock and trade, basically. They need cars to be parking in their car parks. But at the same time, um, you know. I I can be very harsh about it and say, look, these guys need to adapt or their business will fail. There is a business, um, I think it's Car Park off Trinity Street and the company there basically divested themselves from car parks because they can see that things are moving towards walking and cycling. Um, So, I mean, that's a business that has responded. I don't know what they're doing else instead or where they're working, where they're emphasizing, but they have seen what way the wind is going and they're realizing that they need to adjust as a business. So I think that... You know, I think that businesses who rely on cars and parking need to perhaps see what they can do. Can they, you know, convert one floor of their car park to bikes and have people come in? A lot of these car parks are also tied in with the... the, uh, businesses they're attached to, such as a department store or something like that. So all the people who would park their bikes in their car park will now spend their money probably in that department store. Um, so they need to kind of maybe, maybe be a bit more imaginative rather than trying to hold on for dear life to this business model, which really isn't sustainable in any sense of the word. Um, so while I have some, I do have some pity for people whose you know businesses might feel like they're under threat, I really kind of think that trying to use your, you know, handful of, of stakeholders to basically try and prevent positive change in the city, that's where I lose all sympathy. So I kind of get a bit harsh when I when I hear that kind of, um, the, the sort of, I don't know, approaches and lobbying that I hear from these types of organizations. Um, so I do think they either need to adapt or fail. So there is that kind of, you know, response that I have. Um, but also, as I said, people coming into the city will spend money if they are able to walk and cycle and more of it, as the research shows. Um, and
1: they're not just businesses who are selling things. There's also all the services that are in a city, like from the restaurants to the beauty industries to the uh, cafes. Like So there's loads of reasons to come into the city, not just to buy things as absolutely. well. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have, you know, yeah, theatres, cinemas and so on. There's experiences people want to come in. Um, so that's, these are all attractive reasons to come into the city. Um, and that doesn't change just because you're making the city more amenable to and safe as well for people to cycle and walk.
1: That has been so interesting. Um, and we're to, before you go, I'm going to ask you one last easy question. Um, which would be: What would be your perfect vision for a city made for people?
2: Oh gosh! Oh, <laughs> where do I start? Um, yeah, I think that um, very much. If we look at those kind of examples from maybe some of the Netherlands cities, some of the cities that have been changing in response to coronavirus virus, we can we can take the best bits of that and apply and see how can it apply to Dublin. I think that if we had cities and urban centres that are very much people centric in terms of how they're designed, how they're laid out, that they're taking into account accessibility, whether that's people with disabilities, gender, age, um, exclusion around ethnicity and socioeconomic background, all of that needs to be factored in. There needs to be very much, in my view, a human rights almost approach to making the public realm for the public and so that's how i would like to see very much people-centric very much limiting and restricting um, vehicular access Um, so i would if i could limit or exclude through access through a city so you only come in and out you don't go through a city and that would be one of the, the things that i would do as well as very much looking at accessibility and universal design for a city and then if i really want to expand it out beyond dublin and beyond the cities i would like to see Uh, walkways and greenways and blueways linking up urban and um, urban centres and townlands and villages across the city but maybe that's a little bit utopian.
1: No we (laughs) live for a utopia (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us today and I would love to live in your vision of a city
2: Me too, thank you very much
1: We are now joined and very delighted to be joined by uh, Green Councillor for the South East Inner City um, and the Arts and Culture Spokesperson for the Green Party, Claire Byrne. Thanks for joining us, Claire. No nope, problem. Um, um, thank you for having me. Delighted. Um, we'll kick straight in and go to a very easy question. Why do you think there is so little seating and amenities for the use by the public in the city?
3: yeah and it's a it's a question I've been asking since I was first elected back in 2014 um we're just not really good at it in the city and I think there's a number of reasons um one space we' we're, we're relatively tight on space in in many aspects of the city centre in particular because we haven't been prioritising pedestrians in the city for quite some time fortunately we're hopefully seeing that change a bit now Um, and then also I think there's a perception that it it tends to attract anti-social behaviour which I think we know isn't uh, always the case either. Um, I think it is changing though. I think we, you know, we, we probably didn't spend a lot of time focusing on the public realm for quite some time. But um, we have some really good projects happening at the moment, which are which are changing that. Such as Grafton Street Quarter, um, College Green. If that happens, uh, Temple Bar Square will have seating in it. So um, we are seeing changes in that at the moment. But um, I mean, it's a basic need, and we definitely need to have more of us. There's
0: been so many cases of um, facilities being removed uh, because of quote unquote anti-social behaviour or I suppose people deciding that that's not how you sit on a place um, or something like that. Uh, we've been talking a lot about South William Street today, um, but you had the case of the seating being removed outside the Paris Court Centre there Um and now there's kind of no other options for seating and you have Paris Court Centre, a private entity and, and well within the rights to do what they want, uh, Housing down the steps uh, to stop people from sitting on the, them. This is something that happened last summer as well. If we're kind of putting the onus on businesses and commercial entities or handing it over to them kind of to provide public amenities, we're kind of at their disc- discretion as to which public can use them and how, which kind of turns to lead to an exclusivity around public space. And then when they're taken away, they're taken away, we don't actually have anything to replace them. Because, um, you know, lockdown and distancing and all that kind of stuff has highlighted things that many people have been calling on for a long time. What are the increased moves by the council to provide public seating and public gathering space on streets, on paths and on what people kind of view uh, as kind of public walkways and things like that.
3: Yeah, I mean, just in relation to Paris Court, I think that's such a shame, but I think actually what it does is highlight the need for for more seating and places to sort of sit down and and sit and relax in the city, because if we don't provide that, then it just sort of, you know, it sort of facilitates people just passing through. And then if we don't have enough, then you end up with an over pressurised system, like people sitting on the steps there, um, which annoys the businesses, and then they're forced to kind of take those measures. Um, So I suppose part of the COVID response is, is making more space for pedestrians in the city to facilitate social distancing. And we're seeing that uh, and it's a bit slow, but we are seeing it happen. Um, and I suppose like just to give an example with College Green, for example, I mean and we all know you know the back and forth that we've had over that proposal. Um, I think it's a great proposal. I'd love to see it happen. Um, now that we've you know temporarily pedestrianised College Green, I, I would be very hopeful that we can move forward with, with that plan, which does allow you know, there's quite a, a significant amount of seating in that proposal and we're already seeing how successful Clarendon Street is. I walked down there yesterday um, and I think every bench had people sitting on it, taking shade under the trees, you know, sitting down and having a nice time. Um, So, I mean, there's definitely an element, you know, but then when you go, I was looking at pictures on Twitter yesterday about people sitting on Castle Street on the ground, you know, so um, I, you know, definitely, I think the demand is very, very obvious. And I, I think we have to be doing everything we can at the moment to, to meet that demand, um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of uh, as a councillor is delivering the pocket park at the bottom of Georgia Street there, um, which you know, strangely, we have to dig into discretionary funding in order to facilitate, which is just you know some some colourful seating and some bike parking. But again, it brings me real joy when I see people sitting down there as well, and um, so I, I would hope that you know taking this, the opportunity of the crisis to, you know, well, while we are looking at improving pedestrian facilities, that we would be providing more seating as well. Just, well, on, we, oh, go on,
0: Andrea.
1: Yeah, you go.
0: Well, no, I was just thinking that, that because Andrea has a question here about um, the stuff around how uh, public seating or ledges or porches in, in shop fronts and stuff like that, um, are often used by people who are homeless and mm-hmm. um, or kind of in between housing and stuff like that. Obviously, that's a, a public housing issue. And then you see these kind of nasty, um, and although I understand where the businesses are sometimes are coming from as well, like anti uh, anti people design basically on, on ledges like spikes or ridges. You know, it's kind of a development from what we've seen mm-hmm. over the past twenty years with regards to trying to stop skateboarders um on on ledges and stuff like that. Um and Andre, what was that article in the Dublin Inquirer?
1: it was an article uh it was called it was entitled Why Can't They Drink Can Why Can't They Have Cans And in as part of that they were talking about a woman who was homeless, who was sitting on the boardwalk, um, just chilling out and uh sitting in the sun with a can and waiting for the time where she could access um, accommodate the hotline to ring accommodation. But she was targeted um to move on, whereas a lot of the time you don't get that targeting if you're like a group of pals sitting in a park with a picnic and some cans. And it feels very uh, biased towards who we're moving on in the public space. And I suppose the question is, how do we address the equal use of public space for everyone?
3: Yeah. And look, that's, that's a fine balance and, and a key challenge that we have. And, and I suppose that goes back to the association of public seating with what we deem antisocial behavior, but is you know, actually they become temporary homes for people. And, you know, obviously we have to tackle the homeless crisis first and foremost. Um, and we're all very, very committed to doing that. Um, but the reality is we do have thousands of people living on our streets and, um, and, you know, they need relative safe, comfortable places to be also. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. You know, I mean, we, we equally need to be allowing older persons and people with disabilities if they're coming into town, you know, that that they can, you know, take their time and to have places to rest and, you know, for people to be able to sit down and just enjoy the city, you know, and, you um, like whether that's to sit and, and drink a can. I mean, I know there's a bit of a call at the moment to reduce the bylaws to allow for more public drinking. And, you know, in a way I'm okay with that, but I'm only okay with it if we're people are willing to clean up after themselves. And, you know, so there's a whole range of issues there that, that need to be dealt with. But I suppose really at the crux of it is, is tack, you know, we need people in homes, in, in safe, dry yeah. spaces, first and foremost. All
1: that- and um, people cleaning up after themselves, and that really ties in with the perceived antisocial behaviour. And we're usually talking about behaviour that isn't being facilitated. So that's you, like people using the street as a toilet or leaving mm-hmm. their rubbish, because there's no bins. But surely if we focused on a pro social approach and provided these facilities and better managed public space and respected the people who use the space the respect for the space would surely increase and maybe instead of designing a city to curtail antisocial behavior and removing seating etc we maybe designed a city to come alive with amenities to service the wider community and deal with the underlying problematic social issues of themselves because it kind of feels unfair Maybe that the majority of people have to suffer um, without these amenities because of the mismanagement of the minority. And a lot of the time with antisocial behaviour, if you uh, have an influx of people, the antisocial behaviour goes down because there's more people using the seats and they're not being used um, in a negative, shall we say, way.
0: Yeah, I I think as well, just to pick up on that, sorry, Claire, um, before you answer, like I was talking to some on Twitter recently about, you you know, people being allowed to drink alcohol in public or something. And, you know, somebody was giving out about, you know, the the state of the canal when people are drinking, like the canal in Dublin outside the barge and those pubs like that, you know, people leave it at an absolute jocker and that's why people shouldn't be allowed to drink. And somebody made the very valid point, you know, that's an argument for more litter wardens, not to stop people having a couple of beers on on, on the on a waterway
3: uh, yeah there is that argument but also people are grown ups and they should clean up after themselves yeah and, definitely um, and uh, so, you know, I, I mean, look, we're, we're not great at enforcing um, litter management in the city either. And it's a resource and a staffing issue for sure. Um, but I still think, you know, we have worked really hard. I've, most of my, the last two summers and again this year, most of my time goes into dealing with the issues of drinking along the canal and on Portobello Harbour in particular. Um, and, you know, we've worked hard to I- increase the amount of bins there and the amount of patrols. And it, it st- people still, for some unknown reason it's a cultural thing think that it's absolutely fine to stand up and walk away and leave that litter behind them and to urinate on, on people's doorsteps which happens very regularly as well you know so um but 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 it does come back to i suppose environmental design as well and i absolutely agree with what you're saying that if we if we put the effort and the time into designing our spaces in such a way that people uh, might um you know, might ignite a stronger level of respect. Then, uh, you know, I think that's absolutely what we should be what we should be looking at. Um, but you know, at the same time, people have to to make an effort to respond positively as well. I mean, the other argument is the canal is one of the most beautiful parts we have in the city, and yet people are still intent on, on treating it with that level of disrespect. So, um, I think there's a bit of an education piece needed around that as well. I think it's as well like how people
0: mimic other people's behaviour, as you say, like because the canal is known for just having all these after a sunny day, loads of cans and bottles just like left beside bins or just left on the on the banks of the of the canal, that then that's just like a repetition of behaviour. Because one of the things I've noticed um, in the Phoenix Park during lockdown is how clean it is, even though lo- it's never been used as much. And loads mm-hmm. of people are having picnics or having a bottle of wine or a few beers or whatever and all different like demographics, all different ages, like all different people from from the surrounding community. And uh, the OPW just did a kind of simple thing of hanging, hanging some... Um, like kind of heavy duty bin bags and some of the railings near the Wellington Monument. But you do, I I've haven't seen people having to go around, pick up rubbish because of this is kind of a new use of p- so, social public space that obviously when people decided from the get go, oh, well, maybe we're being a bit edgy here drinking in the park. So we'll definitely bring our bottles and cans with us. Um, that people have just mimicked that behaviour, and it's remarkable. Even if there's like thousands of people in the park on a sunny day, you go by in the evening, and the place is spotless.
3: Yeah, and I mean, and it is that sort of. Uh, um, um, I said this is what I do for the festival sector as well. Um, not not to get into that too much, but uh, you know, for example, what we have at Body and Soul, we have two. Um, two different campsites, we have a dedicated green campsite and a general campsite and on the periphery of those two campsites, you will always see um, in the general campsite people will have taken their tents and cleaned up after themselves just along that fence line because it's almost like they're, you know, learning by osmosis and watching what the people are doing in in the other campsite, you know. Um, And so it's really inspiring to hear that that is the case in in the Phoenix Park. Um, and, you know, it is something that we need to be replicating. And to be fair, in the Dublin City Council parks are pretty. Pretty uh, clean as well. It's mm. it's it seems to be more just the streets and along the canals and and in other public spaces as well. You know, uh, Bernardo Square can get, Wolftown Square they can get a little bit. Um, although Wolftown Square has been greatly improved since we put the cafe in there as well. So, um, like we we can absolutely be doing better on the litter management side of things. That's that's absolutely without a doubt. Um, but I think it's it's a two pronged approach in that we well you know, we need to provide the facilities. We need the staff, but we also need people to behave a bit more socially responsibly as well.
1: Yeah, it totally feels like the more amenities you put in – the more respect there is, like like the cafe there. If there's a cafe, if there's a bin, if there's a toilet, if there's all that jazz, you do uh, get reap the results. So it is, culture doesn't just happen, I suppose it, it comes about. But on that, you're just off um, a forum, Zoom call with on the nighttime economy with Sasha Lord, who is the nighttime um. advisor for Greater Manchester. And that's a city who's made such good inroads on making their city work at nighttime. And I certainly don't want to conflate uh, drinking with the nighttime economy, um, as obviously the nighttime economy is a much richer entity that's not just about boozing. Um, But surely not being allowed to enjoy public space and a can of beer or a glass of wine seems extremely outdated. And you talked about the bylaws uh, being updated, but we've seen time and time again the negative impact of restricting alcohol intake. And if you just look at clubs, if you have the last order so early, people, le- it leads to people binging before leaving and everyone gets locked and it gets messy. Um, and maybe like the same could be said about public drinking. And I, we, we this is obviously an episode about seating, not just drinking, So we're not obsessed with drinking. But like the more you open up public space and the more, I mean, you've provided, the less antisocial behaviour you encounter. Um, and obviously the coronavirus has restructured our social um, occasions and how we socialize at nighttime even and do you think that it would it's time for a change that the nighttime in a city can also include a public space because so often it's about keeping people in and then getting them home as opposed to using the space and if you look at cities or I hate to always going to the look at the cities around the world but like the Public space is used as much at at nighttime as it is during the day. Is that something that would be possible? Do you think?
3: Yeah, and, and, and something that came up in, in that forum just now as well um, was I suppose like due to COVID. Hopefully, we can see a bit of a, a fast tracking of, of addressing these issues at the moment because we we need to we've needed for a long time to you know diversify the offering of of the city um 24 hours a day um and move it away from just working and retail and you know uh, like so and that's something that we are we are working on and we're trying to appoint a nightmare for the city or a night manager um uh Sasha Lord doesn't like the term nightmare so we may we may take his lead on that but um um I think at the moment yeah I mean we're we're we just have a really strange relationship with our outdoor space. And the weather probably has a lot to do with it. And we are definitely seeing that changing now. Um, And I think as a result of COVID, we're going to see more tables and chairs outside so we will naturally be sort of socializing our streets a lot more um as a result and there will be more drinking on the streets and and that kind of thing and um and it'll be a bit more above board i think whereas you know it's been a little bit sort of turning a blind eye in certain areas like temple bar and outside the stag's head and that, those kind of areas um, so it may become a bit more socially acceptable but we also still have to make sure that it's done in such a way that's that's safe for people um, and not to get too rulesy about it but you know that is that is really really important um, but then you can also argue that by socialising streets at night then they do you know naturally become safer spaces um, and to do it with a bit you know respect for the people who also live in the city centre as well which we also have to be mindful of but i think we have a real opportunity now to um to really revitalize our nighttime culture and to you know really increase the offerings and to bring people into the city for it to be an experience beyond just coming in to queue for pennies or you know
0: what do you think are the pros and cons of creating maybe designated zones where there can or can't be alcohol consumed on the street? I was in New Orleans last year and obviously all around the French Quarter, um, you can drink on the street. You can go from bar to bar if you have a, a plastic cup or whatever. Now, obviously... um like New Orleans is known for being extraordinarily like hedonistic and partyville. And we've all seen girls trip. We know what happens. Um, But uh, like, do you think that that is a good idea or a bad idea? Part of me thinks like that would feel like, let's say if you went, okay, you can now drink between bars and Temple bar would just be a shit show. Is there more a whole city center approach? Um, Or what do you think about that designated approach?
3: Yeah, I mean, and you have that, like, it's like that in Lisbon as well and Barro Alto. Yeah. I mean, it's a long tradition of people drinking on the streets there as well. And, you know, and in one way, it, it kind of contains the issue and you can allocate resources just to that one area instead of it being across the city Um you know, when you're working with minimal resources, that kind of, and and arguably we kind of have that in Temple Bar here Mm. at the moment, you know, and the various um, uh, people and stakeholders involved in in how we manage that as well. Um, But, um, you know, but there's arguments for for spreading it out as well, you know, and and I suppose it's much like the argument for staggering opening times that you just mentioned there earlier as well, is that you aren't sort of corralling people uh, into onto the streets or into you know particular zones within the city at the same time um which just causes all sorts of problems you know i think there's there's value in, in spreading spreading things around as well so it becomes you know so you're not sort of um um isolating particular areas of the city or you know so that it becomes kind of socialized as a whole so i think that there's probably real value in, in looking at uh, kind of avoiding having those particular zones you know yeah so you not have like um, a hamster dam effect kind of vibe exactly exactly and like i said you know in, in the times that we're in at the moment you know we're going to have every restaurant and every bar looking to have outdoor seating so I, I at the moment i don't think those designated zones would probably work that well I think it would be unfair to to businesses in certain parts of the city.
1: Um, there was a recent survey done by Your Dublin, Your Voice, which is a Dublin City Council initiative to gather sentiment around the nighttime economy. And the results were pretty damning, Its for mm-hmm. the city and its offerings. Um, it feels like for so long... The city and the council was being was kind of creating a city for one type of person who sees antisocial behaviour as what as like drinking on the street or clubbing all night, um, rather than uh, the move that seems to be happening to create a city that incorporates um, all different types of people and all their different needs, like all night clubbing or eating lunch on the street rather than in a cafe or pedestrianisation. What is bringing about this more open mind thinking? Do you think?
3: Um, I think there's been, um, I think there's been a real coming together of the sort of uh, the cultural sector in particular, but also you know the, the members of Dublin Town and uh, restaurants associations, and you know recognizing that um, we could be doing better in the city. And we look at nights like, um, and and I like, and I'm all listen. I'm a big advocate for for revitalising our nightclub culture for sure, and that's that's um, quite high on the list uh, for us at the moment. But it's, um, but like, there's other things we could be doing, you know. I mean, when we look at at um, culture night, for example, and how the, you know, how many people that brings into the city, and how we can, you know, bring families in late at night so that you can come in in the afternoon and then. Have something to eat and then go to a show and then maybe there might be something else happening afterwards, like a night market that you could drop into on the way home. And so it becomes this sort of experience that's, you know, great for the people. Um, take you know participating in it, but it's also really good for the businesses as well. And like, I think now, especially again post COVID, obviously, but we're going to be looking at some, um, probably staggering opening hours across the board, not just for for late night bars and and clubs. Like we're going to, you know, restaurants are probably going to have to start opening later to facilitate uh, more people, so it becomes economically viable for them. We're already seeing shops opening later, and you know, and and, and also just and, and the point was made in that forum earlier about workers also probably working shifts so people in the city now might you know who are working in the city might be finishing to sort of eight or nine at night and they might be looking for something to do as well and so um I, uh, this conversation has been happening for the last number of years, thanks to organisations like Give Us the Night, um, and and politically as well. Uh, but I, like I said, I think we have an opportunity to to sort of accelerate that conversation and, and start implementing these changes needed. Because as a result of the COVID crisis, unfortunately, it takes a crisis. But um, you know, I think we need to really grasp the opportunity.
0: Claire, it's a big day for your party. Um, yeah. How are you feeling about the, the PFG and, and
3: what, what is your thinking on it? Oh, the programme for government, yeah. Um, yeah, I voted to support going into government with a, with a very, very heavy heart and a lump in my throat, I'll be honest. Um, would I choose to govern with Fianna Gael and Fianna Fall? No. Um, but the numbers didn't really stack up and I don't think there's any other real viable alternative and yes, the programme for government falls very far short in the very key areas of housing in particular, as we've just been talking about, um, and and animal welfare and economics potentially, um, but I suppose for me, um, and this comes from somebody who was working with the party when we were in government the last time and I was right there uh, through what was a very traumatic time when our you know we lost most of our seats and uh and it was it was difficult but i suppose for me it's been nine years and um i guess it comes back to the climate activist in me and that's what i've been doing for 17 years and whether i can you know we, we could very easily go into opposition and we could mudsling from there. And that's a very comfortable space to be in. But from a climate action perspective, we unfortunately don't have that luxury. And it came down to me um, wondering, could I look at my kid's face and tell them that we weren't prepared to take the brave decision and try and implement our policies. And there's a lot of good green stuff in there as well. Um, and I guess it just comes down to feeling if we're not in there, we can't make those changes, um, so we'll see what happens. Either way, um, it's it's not going to be an easy period for the party, that's for sure. But um, but uh, I, I'm still proud of of how we've dealt with this, and I suppose for me as well, I was involved in the arts and culture aspects on the early stages of those negotiations, and I'm quite proud of that sector as well. And that would have been another reason for me to um, to vote yes as well because you know if we're not in there then we can't deliver on protecting the arts we can't deliver on uh, revitalizing our nighttime economy and delivering a nightmare for the city and so I uh, they were they were the reasons why I voted yes but we, we'll see what happens
0: right fair enough fair enough um big doll energy today anyway uh coming through uh, media um yeah. I have to say I'm kind of I've, to be honest I'm kind of I'm kind of surprised Um, this is absolutely no judgment it's just a a reaction that I'm surprised that um, you voted for it again no judgment uh, just because there is this narrative of um, you know now maybe this narrative is incorrect but the, the kind of the younger progressive um uh, 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 I don't know wing element. All these things are kind of made up media narratives, right? But like um, younger folks in in the Green Party who are looking more at the reality of how much um, the youth, uh, young voters, are going to be uh, in in such a bind uh, over the next few years. Um, do you think that if it does go through, and and listening to you talk about it from from that way, kind of, I I would have thought this morning that it may fall uh, in terms of the the green, the two thirds support. If if the likes mm-hmm. of you are voting first, that's kind of changing my my mind a little bit, maybe. Um, do you think that it's going to be a government that lasts? I mean, if you were there, you know, a, a decade ago and saw the party get decimated, um, one would imagine that, that your party will be a little more proactive in in potentially pulling a plug if if the things aren't being get done being being got done and if um you know public sentiment shifts because you know, a lot of young people are going to be looking at the Green Party as the party that gave the Micheál Martin tea Taoiseach.
3: Yeah, and like I said, it was an incredibly difficult decision uh, for me personally to support it. Um, and when I was uh, coming to the decision, I mean, I did ask myself, you know, because obviously we have, you know, does this, I mean, I'm not that young anymore, but does this make me old guard? You know, is this, am I not radical enough anymore? Um and you know, I've had to dig very deep to answer those questions when coming to reach this decision. Um and uh, and and we will have to answer to our members and the electorate um if should we go in. Um we will have to fight very hard for the green elements that are in that programme for government and um you know, I mean, I, I suppose you can't go into something, you know, saying oh, we'll walk at the first hurdle, you know, but, you know, perhaps this time, because there's 12 TDs instead of six, maybe if, the, you know, if things aren't working out, then perhaps we may have to consider walking away at an earlier stage than we did the last time. I mean, I I, I think we probably should have gone earlier than we did back in, back in those days, but you also have a responsibility to govern, you know, and and yes, we're putting our, risks, our seats at risk. Yes, I'm putting my own seat at risk. Um, but I, I suppose that, you know, for me, I've always... The, the Green Party for me is is about... Uh, it's as much of a political party as it is a movement. And um, I suppose we have to be willing. We can't wait, really, for me. Mm-hmm. Nothing has happened from a climate perspective for the last nine years. And we can't wait another two, three, five years. And it's not perfect. But, you know, like the Paris Accord isn't a perfect agreement either. But if nobody signed up to it, then we'd be in even greater trouble than we are on a global scale at the moment. Um, so for me, it's about, you know, taking that very brave step of prioritizing the planet over our own politics. And I think there's bravery in that. And I suppose that's probably why that was my the main deciding factor for me. But yeah, it wasn't a- easy. Yeah, so I think can... it's a, a rare example
0: where both sides, um, you know, voting yes for it or voting no for it. But it seems to me like in talking to different Green Party members that there's a lot of thinking going uh, yeah. going on and a lot and of... And so uh, searching and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's more that you can say for, for let's say, you know, the Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael Party members who are kind of just si- signing off on something. And I think yeah. it's fair to say that wherever your politics land... Um, the decision to vote yes or the decision to vote no are ten. In terms of the Green Party, they both seem to be rooted in in integrity and in, um, you know, a, a, a broader vista. So I think you know, um, whatever way it goes, uh, that does seem to be to be rooted in that. And however it pans out is how it pans out. So um, yeah. best of luck I either mean- way.
3: Thank you very much. We'll we'll know later on today. So, um, but it's look, it's we're a very democratic party, and that's part of the appeal. And it's not easy to, to go against what the, some of my colleagues who I respect hugely, you know, um, to go against their position on this. Um, but I I full faith that as a party, no matter what happens, we will still pull together and continue to grow. And you know, it, ha- it hasn't been easy, but there is a, a deep level of respect there on both sides. Um, so we can continue to, to do our work.
1: Well, best of luck with it. And thank you thank so you. much for joining us, Claire.
3: Thanks a million for having me.
0: So fave bits. Uh, this week, my fave bits are number one, I May Destroy You, which is a, a series on the BBC V uh, trigger warning fest. Um, it is about a night out that a woman has and um, what she struggles to remember and what happens around it. But it's just a very oftentimes when things around like sexual assaults and stuff are, TV, are on TV, can always um, it can often just feel like You know, this is just a mechanism for the sake of it. Uh, This is very not like very much not about that. It it centers that experience in it. Um, It's a dark watch. It's also kind of funny, um, brilliantly acted. So I would recommend my other fave bit is so I was trying to find uh, I did that thing of like at the start of lockdown being like, I really need to buy a bike. Because um, I just used Dublin bikes and um, then ruminated on it for three months every day going, God, I really should, I really should buy that bike uh, and never did. I also don't like new things and I don't like buying things. Um, so I went to, it just brought home to me how important it is to buy things as locally to you as possible and to support independent businesses as much as possible. I went to my local bike shop, which is Little Bikes in Stony Butter and had a really nice chat with them there and and hopefully getting a, a bashed up old, um, I wouldn't even say it's secondhand. I'd say it's like millionth hand uh, old bike frame that they're going to do up with with um, other little bits, a composite thing. And, um, you know, I guess you could walk into Decathlon or something and buy a new bike for 250 quid and think um, that that's grand. I just think it's just way better for us to look at things that already exist on the planet and repurpose them. Um, So that was my little experience this week. And uh, my other fave bit is, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, maybe I have. This morning uh, I was doing a a digital virtual whatever Zoom uh, book launch of Susan Liddy's book. Uh, Susan Liddy is boss woman, um, academic, film academic. Uh, She's absolutely amazing. Like after a conversation with her, you just feel so energized. She's written or edited this amazing book called Women in the Irish Film Industry. And it's a collection of different kind of chapters and essays about different filmmakers uh, throughout history in in Ireland. It's really, really great. So if you're into, if you work in film, if you're a film nerd, uh, I learned so much from reading this book. Uh, So check it out.
1: Faber Rooney, Rooney. Uh, my favorite bits, I've loads of them. I'm so happy. Uh, are first up, the politician um, on Netflix is the second series. Just came out last week. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, I particularly enjoyed their episode on cultural appropriation and um, all that went with that. So I would highly recommend. And it's obviously so beautiful. Bette Midler's in it. And she is a queen of queens. And so it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I really enjoyed Lancome on Other Voices last night. Um, I just am obsessed with them as a band. And I we've spoken about how great the Courage series on Other Voices is. So it's uh, going from strength to strength. Um, I also love the release of Dreams by loads of amazing women in the music industry, which is seems very poignant timing um, given the report that came out this week. But mm-hmm. also it's raising money for Safe Ireland um, and awareness um, because obviously there's been such an increase in uh, violence of women and men um, at home who which is as we always say just violence but domestic violence so um it's an amazing uh, cover of the cranberry's dreams and it's been given such a great uh, a great thing to so i really enjoy it when i hear it on the radio and when i hear it whenever it's brilliant um bizarrely i was i've been driving a lot because i live in the country now uh for the time <laughs> being and- <laughs> come on come on andrea <laughs> I live in the country. Where are you country, living right now? Uh, the garden of Ireland of Wicklow.
0: Okay. Well, that's the yeah, side,
1: I guess. It, yeah. It is the country at the lakes of Blessington. Um, and so my drives into town are something that I wouldn't have usually. So I sat, I start. I was reminded of war of the Worlds, and I decided to go on a journey and listen to the whole, uh, whole album whole musical whole whatever it is um one night coming home and it's just the best experience i would really highly encourage people to go on their own war of the world's journey it's phenomenal and it was like really spooky and dark when i was doing it so it's all the martians i could visualize it oh brilliant um then Also, I love the fact that Ruth Medjber has a book of all her. She was doing portraits of people in their windows at twilight for the lockdown. And Penguin are releasing her book, Twilight Together, Portraits of Ireland at Home. And A, I love just how fast it's been turned around. B, I love how it's just such uh, a kind of... Poignant reminder of what we've just gone through and what a weird time it was, and I do love her photography as well. And then finally, God, have so many. Finally, uh, it was announced yesterday that the eighth is finally getting its Irish premiere. It's finally coming to Ireland, um, and it is going to be opening the thirty second Galway Film Flat. The tickets are on sale now, but they are limited because they are only selling as many tickets as the amount of people who would have seen it if they went to Galway. Mm. So I would say get on a fast if you want to see it and um, it's on the 7th of July and you can, once you get your ticket, you can watch it at whatever time that day. But that evening at 8.45, there is a Q&A with two of the three female Irish directors, um, Maeve and Lucy, and also with Alva Smith, who is the convener of the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth and co-director of Together for Yes. And Hun Andrea, that's me. So there you
0: go. It's I've already bought, I bought my ticket this morning because I'm not going to miss out. And, oh, uh, 7 euros 50 gets you um, the the digital screening of uh, the 8th and I am so excited. Uh, 7th of July, I believe. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, brill, brill, brill.
1: I can't wait to see it because I only saw it once and the directors brought a lot of wine over it when we were watching <laughs> it. So I don't actually remember wow. Uh, I do remember loads of people have watched it in Canada and, America and US and have sent me pictures of this scene of me in the gym and I just don't know how they talked me into doing it it's the most scarlet thing ever but, uh, so
0: um, spoiler we won
1: <laughs> <laughs> amazing I won't have to forward to the end <laughs> Um,
0: what is the deal, Andrea? Apart from apart from your um, burgeoning international uh, doc star career, which I will happily ride along the coattails of, let me tell you.
1: Oh gosh, uh, the deal is: don't embarrass me about the gym scene in the film.
0: <laughs> is, that a di- heard- is that a directive from the from the Department of Health?
1: <laughs> that is a directive from my Department of Health. Uh, <laughs> Keep your distance from everyone. Really, people are getting up in your grill a lot more. So, can you back off? Uh, keep washing your hands. Uh, have a little sanitizer uh, in your in your bag on the go. Um, keep your sneezes and coughs contained. And for God's sake, put on a mask, uh, especially when you're in uh, supermarkets. If you're in getting your nails or hair done or wherever you're going, just think of think of the other people, um, because. You know, that's all we have. And,
0: you know, I know that the medical or the surgical masks are are a bit of a mouth. Um, I would like to offer my top tip. I know everybody's buying and making all these like fancy cloth masks and all that kind of stuff. Um, as you know, Andrea, all of my clothes are black and have been for many, many, many years. And uh, you can get these really great washable and reusable black uh, material masks. Um, now, okay, there's they are kind of synthetic, like they're quite stretchy or whatever, but you can, um, in a lot of places, you can buy them, pharmacies, you can just buy them for two fifty dollars um, for two, I think it is. Um, the, I've been wearing them the whole time. They're much more comfortable. They're much more breathable. So if you just hate the kind of bluey, medical masks or whatever just get a cloth one it actually changes everything and then you kind of forget that you're wearing it so go for that one
1: and the bluey pla- medical masks are they're all washing up on the seashore lines already so there's so much waste involved with them so please like pre- like get a reusable one yeah reuse, reuse what's the reuse whatever anyway who cares uh the, we'll ju- ju- we'll the ju- greens oh yeah uh a tuna chicken roll it's a pride special happy pride to everyone woo uh this i, I kind of don't know if i did this one already but tough luck um it always reminds me of bowling on georgia street when all the floats go by of everyone just living their best queer life and uh i just yeah that's it it's uh, kylie's all the lovers
0: Happy Pride to all my fellow gays, lesbians, bisexual people, trans folks, queer people, non-binary people, everyone who gives a fuck, doesn't give a fuck, lives their lives freely. Uh, I'm sad that a lot of people who whose Pride is their main outlet for the year, um, people who use Pride as a mechanism to come out, um, just take some time this weekend uh, as a queer person to remember how far we've come, how far we have yet to go queer revolution now fuck the bread party on enjoy the weekend I love you all and I love you Andrea I love you Inna I've
1: been Inna I've been Andrea that was Streets of a Seats
0: and we are United Gay Ireland
1: (laughs) Adios Senoritas you. Why won't you move? I'll get inside your
2: groove cause I'm on fire, 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 fire. It
0: hurts when you get too close, but baby it hurts.
1: If love is really good, you just want more. Even if it throws you to the